pressure. Is it a privilege or more of a burden? Where does it come from? How do we handle it? How do we create self-belief and confidence that's resilient? How do we make complicated things sound simple? When should we communicate using lots of words or few words or no words, just a hug? All these things we get into with my guest, great friend and ESPN tennis colleague, Darren Cahill. Now, Darren has mastered the art of coaching. Grew up watching his dad, a legend in Aussie rules football coaching. He's guided three number one ranked players to Grand Slam titles, Leighton Hewitt, Andre Agassi, and currently Simona Hallam. He's also worked with many other top players. His advice is constantly sought out by players and coaches all over the world. Plus, he's one of the best analysts in TV sports. This conversation was mostly before the U.S. Open. Then, we caught our breath, circled back a couple of days after the Grand Slam quest of Novak Djokovic and the electric women's final with Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez. That's at the end of the episode. So this is a treat for tennis fans. And Darren's ideas are as valuable in everyday life, in your workplace, or if you want to coach your kids. Today, I've got Darren Killer Cahill. So Darren, how would you describe the effects of pressure on the mind of an athlete? <laughs> we start with the easy one, CF. Uh, Is that easy? <laughs> oh, yeah, really. Oh, look, it's all encompassing, really, because there are so many different factors that go into pressure. And I think the main one is the pressure that you put on yourself with the expectation. And every kid has a dream of achieving something pretty special in sport. And you dream about that nonstop till you get to a certain point where that dream might even be possible, might even be capable for the 0.0001% of, of those youngsters growing up. So it's the expectations you put on yourself. It's the pressure you feel from the people around you. It could be from your parents. It could be from your coaches. It could be from outward sources. And I, I can frame it in a little story that I have with Simona and, and her struggles to break through and become the number one player in the world and to win her first ever major. She lost a couple of crushing finals, both at the French Open, one to Sharapova and one to Ostapenko. And I remember that pressure after losing to Ostapenko uh, the pressure of failing in, in the big moment and it really getting to her and, and the way she reacted after losing that 2017 Roland Garros final. And we were sitting in a locker room afterwards and we just shut the door. It was just her and I and we we're just sitting on the floor and, and she was in tears. And I just remember her putting her head on my shoulders and just letting it all out for about 30 minutes. And I didn't really know what to say. Normally I'm okay with finding the words and I didn't have any words to give her. And all I could think about was the suffering that she was going through. And in a sport, you know, two people go out there, one person comes off a winner, one person comes off a loser, and you do everything you can to prepare the athlete in the right way and, and to give them the best chance of possibly winning. The following year, we get to the French Open final again, and right before the final, a really powerful Romanian person and, and a good friend of Simona's, certainly somewhat part of the team, came up to me and said, we ready? We're going to win this? And I said to him, yeah, I think so. You know, Simona's ready. She's playing great tennis and, and she's, she's fired up and playing a person that she's beaten a couple of times before in Sloane Stevens. And yeah, I, I think she's feeling great. And he goes, no, no, no. 
we need this. You know, I don't mind about Simona. The country needs this. 20 million people need this. This is really important for Romania that she wins this match. And I'm thinking to myself, no shit, Sherlock. You know, this, this is a, a big moment. But it hit home. I got goosebumps. It hit home that, okay, this is important for us and, and really important for Simona. But there are bigger things at play here. And, and you know, she's, she's got to find a way to get through this. And so if I'm feeling the pressure then, you know, what is she feeling in, in those size five shoes that she wears and going out there and trying to get this done? So uh, she has remarkable strength uh, to be able to deal with that pressure that she puts on herself, which is enormous anyway, and then to deal with that outward pressure that she felt from a loving country that wanted her to get over the line and win her first major um, incredible mental strength and and some people can deal with it some people can't some people rise up to the challenge and play their very best tennis some people cower and, and, and freeze in the moment and, and it's just a natural thing and it's sort of what separates the great from the good it's a beautiful story with a happy ending as she did get that trophy in Paris and make the 20 million people happy and, and obviously yeah. achieve a lifelong dream and has gone on to do that as well everybody has their ways of putting themselves in the zone and that could be from the training. It could be from belief. It could be from my, my big thing when I played was I always used to think of myself as a bit of a racehorse and putting the blinkers on. And so whilst tennis is played between the lines, because it's only two people out there and you had this massive big stadium, if you paid too, too much attention to everything that was going on around the stadium, my mind would drift and wander. So before every single point, I always used to think of myself as being this racehorse and I had the blinkers on and everything would just focus into the person on the other side of the court. So all the peripheral stuff sort of faded away. And, and that really helped me, especially in the big moments. And I was just concentrating on what was in front of me. The thing about coaching is everybody is different. Everybody has different strengths and weaknesses. And to be a really effective coach, you've got to work out what they are. And then you have to build the strengths in what the players have. It's not all about focusing on the weaknesses, being a coach. It's more about building the strengths. We'll get into the art of tennis coaching, which you do as well as anyone has ever done, including coaching some very strong personalities and two other world number ones yeah. besides Simona. But the interesting thing that's so compelling about tennis, Darren, for me is, is that, that mental battle and the struggle within oneself. You, you see it played out. It can be beautiful when it's overcome. It can be hard to watch sometimes when yeah. a player is fighting themselves. It seems like they're fighting their team in the box as well as the opponent. All of those things because a tennis court can look like a very lonely place. So besides the macro pressure of having to win a title for your country or fulfill a lifelong dream, it's the pressure in that moment. You have to get your body to cooperate. You have to hit a beautiful serve, hit a beautiful backhand in that moment and then try to push that tension out of the body because that's that's the enemy of execution, right? Or, or, or can it be a positive? We tend to think of pressure as a negative most of the time. It's a positive, and you keep talking about the fact that it's, it's exactly the place you want to be. There's no other place in the world you wish to be than to be taking that last touchdown pass or to be kicking that last goal or to be stepping on the line and serving at 40-30 match point for a big tournament. It's exactly where you want to be. So to be scared of that moment is, is kind of, it's not natural because that's the moment you've been dream, dreaming about for all your career. And, and that's when the, the great players embrace that moment and say, give me the ball. This, this is what I want. Give me the ball because I have a chance here to achieve something really special. 
it takes training though, Chris, as you know, you know, you just, you didn't walk into this job, what you do at the moment and be as good as you are by just it coming to you. You've got to work on it and you've got to work on it all the time. Even when you're away from the studio doing what you do, I'm sure you're prepping and you're looking at other people that do this and you're trying to get things that other people do well. You're trying to improve your craft. Sport is that sport is 24 seven sport is always working on ways to find little areas that you can keep on improving and keep evolving as an athlete. So, you know, it's incredibly important to learn from your losses and, and your failures and to try to come back and be a little bit stronger next time around. It's not always going to be perfect for you. You build resilience from those failures. And as long as you keep on pushing and keep on trying and keep on persevering, you're going to give yourself the best chance possible. You stated in, in a different way what Billie Jean King has made famous, which is that pressure is a privilege. And folks can nod their heads and understand what that means to win enough to be in that moment where you're serving for a title, to work as hard as you've had to work to get there and play in a big match and have the eyes of the world on you. Yes, that's a privilege. But I think a lot of players would say that privilege feels a lot like a burden. You can try to use code words and techniques that sports psychologists provide you. But when you're trying to step up and do it, we've seen the great Serena Williams have to deal with tremendous pressure and look uncomfortable yeah. in doing so, especially later in your career. We've seen Novak Djokovic trying to achieve great things. E even Federer and Nadal, you can see the expression of pressure and tension on them and have to come through it again. That's what makes the sport so beautiful. But at times in those moments, it looks like a privilege they'd rather not have. It looks like something that, that they're really struggling with. Even the greats. It kind, of, it kind of makes the journey worthwhile, right? Because those greatest moments, sometimes you hit a few bumps along the way and uh, the destination is more beautiful if, if it's a bit of a rocky road to get there. And we're not perfect. Everybody makes mistakes and everybody has bumps along the way. And it's it's part of life and part of the journey as an athlete and uh, as long as you keep embracing it keep putting yourself in those positions and the one thing that i would always say is and if you can put the coaching hat on you can go out and have a chat to your athlete right before those big moments how did you get into this position why are you here what are the x's and o's and you know brad and i we always go back to the x's and o's because they are so important is that how did you lead 6-4-5-4-40-30 match point? What were you doing to get here? What were the tactics that were working? What were your strengths? Where were you serving in the big moments? How were you winning your points? And if you go back to the X's and O's in the big moments, it takes kind of the emotion out of it as well. And, and I think simplifying is really important in those moments. And if you can just get through the, the player's head that, okay, I'm the better player today. I got to this position because I've been serving to a particular point. I've been using my forehand effectively. Instead of going inside in, the inside out is working much better for me. That's what I'm going to do in the big moments. I'm going to play to my strengths. And if my strengths don't work, at least I gave it my best shot. Yeah, you spend time instilling that in a player so they can do it themselves in the moment. Um, other sports have coaching within the competition. You're one of the yeah. few, though, as, as coach of a, a very high-level women's player, actually more than one, to step out there in WTA tournaments where coaching is allowed on a changeover if they ask for it and then try to deliver that message in the heat of the moment in 60 seconds while reading the situation and figuring out are a lot of words necessary are a few words necessary how do I how do I turn this around in a few seconds here 
Yeah, is it a tactical conversation? Is it an emotional conversation? Is it a bit of a pep-up talk? Uh, it could be anything, to be quite honest. But less is best in those moments. In the heat of the moment, if you can keep your words pretty short, give one or two things that the players can grab onto. Because if you give a whole bunch of words in 60 seconds, most of it gets lost. So I've found with the on-court coaching on the WTA tour that less is best, be to the point and give your players something they can really grab onto. Um, I do believe that we are heading towards some coaching in the men's tour. I don't believe we'll ever have coaching in the Grand Slams. I think the Grand Slams, not all the Grand Slams, but I think a couple of them are really against it. So you need all four Grand Slams to be on the same page to bring in something like that. But I do believe on the ATP tour and the WTA tour, coaching is a good thing because we're there to make the athletes better. We're there to make the competitions better. Um, I think it does bring a little bit of insight into the living room of people watching as well. Uh, any ways that we can help the athletes be a better version of themselves, I think is a good thing. It's been such a huge topic in sports, coping with pressure and trying to overcome that. Um, in, in tennis, Naomi Osaka's talked about feeling pressure, expectations, battling things within herself, and some things conspiring to take the joy and the enjoyment out of what can be a very joyful job. And it just day-to-day seems you know, like a struggle where – it, it's not the pressure to hit a shot in the moment. It's just living, living that lifestyle and then trying to dig out of that and, and turn up and, and do the job. It, 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 at times, this can seem like a very complicated sport. <laughs> You've lived the sport with me for a number of years now. You understand. <laughs> you, you probably heard me complain a little bit and uh, uh, talk about stories on tour and, and you know, talk about the stories of my players as well. It's a complicated life, right? It, you would think it would be a little more simply uh, simplified because of the fact you're only coaching one person. If you're the coach of a team, you're looking after a roster of players and you've also got a bunch of assistant coaches as well that are taking on some of that responsibility. And you probably don't dive in to the lives of those players 24-7 like we do as tennis coaches, but we take on more a much bigger role than just coaching tennis balls and coaching how tennis balls are hit. It's really a psychologist role it's a friendship role uh, you're, you're not only spending time at the courts but you're spending time away from the courts with that player uh, you're dealing with all sorts of stuff when it comes to that player as well so uh, it's I love it you know it's, it's all I know uh, you mentioned early that I grew up in an Aussie rules family and my dad being a player and a coach and and watching him go away about his coaching craft back as a youngster back in Adelaide Australia I think I learned a lot from him and I didn't really know it at the time, but kind of his style has been my style through the course of my coaching career as well. And one of the big things that he was always great at was selling belief and letting his players feel like they were actually a little better than what they were. And he was great at the culture side of things as well, putting the team together, having some real things in place that the players would gather around each other, especially when times got tough and rise up and help each other. And the culture is a huge, huge thing in team bonding and team coaching, but it's a massive thing on the tennis court as well, because if you have good culture, if you have a good feeling amongst the team that you have, it just helps the player go out onto the court and not feel like they're alone because they are alone. It's, it's one of the few sports where you go onto the court and you basically have a conversation with yourself. And 95% of that conversation you're having with us, with yourself is a bad one. You know, it's like, oh, my God, how can I miss that? Ball? Oh, you're so bad. You are the worst player. You know, that is just what we do. 
it's really hard, hard for us to hit a good forehand down the line and say, oh, good on you, mate. That's awesome. That was a great shot. You, you, tennis players just don't do that. So it, it's you need a good team around you. You need to build a good culture and you need to sell that belief. And I think that's what my dad was really good at. Yeah, he's got a great reputation in doing that. That might be the ultimate team sport. 18 aside on the field at one time. 36 players out there. I'm, I'm glad I never had to announce that. I mean, 22 is enough on, on the field at one time in American football, but, but 36 guys out there. How do you think pressure is different in a team sports environment versus an individual sport, including the ultimate individual sport? Is it, aren't team sports a bunch of individuals anyway running around? Whilst you might work as a team, it comes down to those moments where it becomes an individual thing doesn't it? Even in college football, it's the quarterback throwing the touchdown pass or it's the receiver taking the mark or the catch or whatever you guys call it. You know, it's sport these days gets broken down so much that it's very much individual and about individual performances and, and, and how you perform under pressure. So I don't think there's a huge difference between that. I don't see a massive difference between a tennis player's performance and Tom Brady's performance because it's the way we look at it these days and the way we do the analytics and we break everything down with the tape and the way that we dissect it as commentators and analysts. So, yeah, I think the same pressure applies whether you're playing in a team or whether you're an individual. I don't really think there's much of a difference. This part of the conversation was during the Tokyo Olympics and our talk turned to the difficult decisions that gymnastics legend Simone Biles had to make with the whole world watching. Through his experiences coaching Simona Halep, Darren says it's important to listen and learn and be grateful for Simone Biles' honesty. How strong is she, though? Uh, just an amazing person, an amazing athlete. And I've been around this long enough now. I've been working with Simona Halep for the last six or seven years. Uh, for me, she is the strongest, um, mentally the strongest, one of the most capable people that I've met in my life an amazing person an amazing athlete an amazing competitor and, and as I said before being by her side and watching the pressure that she's been under throughout the course of her career and her being able to deal with it and find ways to to get through those times of toughness when it when it was really breaking her down yeah I, I get what Simone is going through uh, I've seen it from a different athlete um, I've been around it long enough to know that we all have to have patience with that. We have to take our time and we have to ask questions and learn from these, these moments because things like Simone is communicating to us at the moment, we can all learn from them and we can all get better from them. And the next generation coming through will be more aware of when they are having these struggles. Okay. It's not just me. You know, I'm not the weird one. Uh, this has happened to athletes before and they'll be able to deal with it much more efficiently. So my heart goes out to Simone. Um, I hope that she gets through it. Um, they call it the twisties. Is that right? What she's going through. I saw some video that she released yesterday about doing some training in Tokyo. One of the places opened up a gym for her where she's jumping into a pit, trying to get her, her jumps right. And she's landing on a back of all things. So can you imagine if she was actually to perform and, and lose her way getting the twisties in competition and actually really hurt herself. So, yeah, I hope she gets through it. I, apparently, a lot of the gymnasts do go through this and they do get out of it. So, our heart goes out to Simone and, and thanks for being so honest. And we can all learn from this as well. In the culture now, there seems to be a, a pretty disappointing lack of empathy and compassion among people that have no understanding of what an athlete is going through. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated because 
titles are won, championships decided, legacies built, and how you do handle pressure in the moment. And man, it can be pretty harsh. I mean, in, in tennis, the, the label of choking in the moment. I mean, every, every player has done it. And no matter how great they are, we're, we're talking about Roger, Rafa, Novak, Serena. They've all had those moments where they fell short of what they wanted to do because the moment, they couldn't meet that moment. But man, is it difficult and harsh these days to be, to be judged for that when you've done so many other great things and yet people want to remember and focus on, you know, two minutes of frailty. I had uh, Andre Agassi, we talked about the AFL. Andre Agassi did me a, a wonderful favor where he got on with the leaders of the Port Adelaide Football Club on a Zoom call just like this. And he was having a chat uh, to, to the leaders of the club. So there was about 10 of the players. And one of the questions to Andre was, would you walk back some of your mistakes that you made throughout the course of your career? It was like he was a little bit offended by it. He goes, why would I do that? You know, yeah, of course, I've made plenty of mistakes, but all of those mistakes I've made have made me the person that I am today. And I would never walk back any of those because I've learned from them and I've become a better person from them and I've become a better athlete from them. And I'm sitting here today. He didn't say this, but he, he was sitting there today and he's won eight majors and he's won an Olympic gold medal. He's won the career slam, the career golden slam. Uh, everything that could be achieved in tennis, he achieved it. And he only achieved it because there was some big hurdles along the way that he had to overcome and he had to become better because of that. So no, he would not go back and start his life again, knowing the mistakes he made. Those mistakes were really important for him in his growth as a person and an athlete. And I thought that was really good. As usual, our minds are together. I was going to write Andre very soon because you coached him when he became the oldest number one male player in the world at that time. And not many people believed in him that he was going to be able to get back to that moment but Andre was such a beautifully and still is a beautifully you know complex person I mean he he's got many facets he he, he uh the complexity is one of the things that makes him the person who he is made him the player who he is but also made it a challenge I imagine to coach him at times because you know Andre as he talked about in his book and has in other times um you know, he could lose focus. He could lose his priorities where it suddenly became not that important to win this match or this title. And, and that's, that's the beauty of him. He, he's not like too many people that have ever played any sport. So coaching him must have been fascinating at the, at the same time. Yeah, he's a complicated genius, Andre. <laughs> uh, he could make the difficult really simple. He, he could just break it down incredibly fast. You know he would think about things for a long time and he'd come back with a solution that was, oh yeah, and that makes perfect sense. But he wasn't great with the simple. He could make the simple really, really complicated, way too complicated. And I think that's why both Brad and I had some great times with him is that Brad and I are pretty much on the same wavelength is that we like to keep things simple and we like to keep things clear and our communication is pretty clear as well. So we were, we were a good mix for him because at times he could overcomplicate things and we could come in and go, no, 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 no. This is how it is. And he go, okay. And he would move everything into different compartments and just concentrate on the task at hand. So it was a bit of a yin and yang with the coach and the player and getting, and it's where it's really important also to get the right type of coach with the right type of personality with the player. It's not about how they play sometimes. It's about the mindset. And so that's where it was quite successful with both Brad and myself. I've said this many times before. He made me a much better tennis coach than I made him a tennis player. There's no question about it because you have to be on your game 24-7 when you work with someone like Andre. Darren, how would you make a distinction between belief and confidence? Belief is deep. It can come from 
years and decades. Confidence, I think most players in most sports would say you can come and go, but it is remarkable as an outsider to watch it from sometimes from a broadcast booth or courtside. Confidence just go like that. It can evaporate with one miss and seemingly turn a match around. I mean, the mind is a very interesting thing. And as a coach, you sit there in a box kind of helpless, but that, that just helped shed some light on, on just the idea of confidence kind of coming and going in an instant. Yeah, so I've got the my five attributes that I believe that champions possess. You, you can talk about speed and height and power, and you know, there's a whole bunch of attributes that – you're not gifted and and some players have them some players don't but the five attributes that i believe that all champions have work ethic and you talk about belief you can't have belief without great work ethic and the champions they put the work in they don't all work to the same level because some people are a little bit different in the way they go about it but you've got to be able to put the work in and if you don't put the work in you have no chance at, at this level they all have unbelievable purpose and it's about finding the why about what makes an athlete tick and coaching for the why. And that'll make a massive difference in building that purpose for the player. Because for when I came along, Andre was 32 years of age. He'd accomplished amazing things throughout his career. You said it before, most people thought that he was maybe on the way down. But his purpose was to build an opportunity and a life and, and, and education for kids that couldn't afford it in his hometown in Las Vegas. That's what he was playing for. He wasn't playing for himself. And he'd already accomplished everything you needed to accomplish as a tennis player. He, he was playing for the kids of Las Vegas. So that was his purpose. And, and once you know the purpose, then you can build a program and a schedule around that to keep him inspired to go out there and continue to do uh, what he does great. The belief you spoke about, all the great champions in the world, they just have it. And they have it through built-up resilience as well. Um, that's going on the path that we spoke about. The, it's never a straight line. It's never a, a, a normal straight road with no bumps along the way. Everybody suffers through those bumps and, and you can go through the, the lives of every great champion, every great sport, and there'll be amazing stories attached to those, um, those lives. So you've got to build up that resilience and embrace it as something good and something that's needed to get there. And the last thing that I believe, especially in tennis, that all the great champions have, they have a great team around them. They don't just have a coach coming in every year or two and keep looking for the magic bullet to, now I'm going to get into a new coach because this is not working for me. I, I, I'm not sure why I'm not winning tennis matches. It's time to change things. They have a strong team around them that they can build up that belief and that culture that we spoke about before. And if you look at Federer, he's had... Severin Luthi. And he's had a couple of other coaches come in as well, but he's had his fitness trainer for all his career. Severin Luthi's been all, all his career. You look at Djokovic, he's had Marion Vida basically there his entire career. If you look at Serena Williams, Patrick Moradoglu has been there for the last seven or eight years. And before that, it was her dad that's been there for her. And same for Venus as well. You go through all the best players in the world. They've got strong, consistent teams around them. And I believe that's really important for continued success. Obviously, this changes player by player, situation by situation. But in, in general, how would you describe the art of tennis coaching in terms of technical strokes, tactical, the X's and O's, and just the mental side, being, being um, a cheerleader, uh, a hard ass, or a friend, or whatever, whatever you have button you have to push? 
So I think tennis is a little bit different because you're one-on-one and you don't have a roster of players changing and coming through your team. So I think the window of making real change and being really effective is about three or four years in tennis. Once you get to that moment, you become it becomes more of a managerial role in tennis. The important thing after that is for the coach to evolve. And we talk a lot about tennis coaching in that because you're one-on-one, because the jobs are quite protective, coaches are a bit reluctant to reach out for help. So if I'm having trouble with Simona and, and having trouble improve her serve, the first thing I would do is, and I've done this before, is to reach out to someone who probably knows the serve a little better than me and say, hey, listen, can you come in and take a look at Simona's serve, see if there's anything I'm missing because I'm trying to get an extra three or four miles per hour on his serve. That's really important. I don't think that happens a lot in tennis. So you have to evolve. You have to reach out. You have to get other people to come in. Otherwise, you only have a certain amount of information in your bank. And once you unload all that information, where do you go to from there? And that's why sometimes the, the limit is about three or four years as a tennis coach. So evolving as a tennis coach is incredibly important. Early, I think a lot of it is technical and technical. But if you're not addressing the emotional quality, and we talk a lot about the IQ in tennis, um, if you're not addressing the emotional quotient from day one, you're really neglecting your job because it's amazingly important. And you've got to be on that right from the start. And as you go through the course of the next couple of years, the technical and the tactical certainly changes depending on the situation. One major difference in tennis is that the coach works for the player. His or her income is decided by what the player does and what the player decides to pay them, and that varies widely. And you are the head of perhaps a, a team, but the team all orbits around the player and the player's whim. There's so much turnover in tennis coaching. How is that dynamic when any, any tennis coach can get fired oh, at any moment after any result, right? <laughs> if the player That's changes right. their mind. <laughs> now, I see a lot of... Uh, coaches around the world that coaches that coach teams uh, complain about the length of a coach's contract two or three years and the uh, instability of it and uncertain futures and I think oh my god it'd be unbelievable to have a two or three year contract wouldn't it because (laughs) my and, and I'm one of the lucky ones because I've been able to work with three amazing people and Leighton Hewitt, Andre Agassi and Simona Halep I can tell you with Andre that I had a handshake, handshake agreement with Andre uh, for five years and, and that was it. So we could have stopped at any moment in time. Um, and, and I always looked at it that whatever time I get to spend with somebody like him, regardless of how long it was, I was going to walk away as a better person and a better, better coach for it as I moved on to my next role. I did mention that to Simona a, a number of years ago about the arrangement that I had with Andre and the first thing she said I want that too <laughs> and so I actually have a handshake agreement with her as well and and you know we, we've had a much rockier road than what I had with Andre because of many reasons and and they've been well documented but it's been about the journey that her and I have had to build up that relationship to have that trust between her and I to build that resilience we talk about so often and, and we've come out of the other side of it great friends and better for it and hopefully she's a better athlete and a better tennis player for it and I'm certainly believe I'm a better coach for it because to go through those moments it's an eye-opening experience and one of the things I do is I have a couple of people that I talk to back in Australia a lot about 
what I'm going through and how to handle situations so I can get different views about what is right and what is wrong. There's no, there's no real right and wrong because it's really just you're in uncharted territory with a lot of the stuff that we go through. It's about trying to work out what is the best situation and the best way to handle it. And uh, I've been wrong a number of times um, at the US Open when she lost to Sharapova. I think it was about 2017. Simona was trying to get the number one ranking in the world. Uh, it was just after the Ostapenko loss at the French Open as well. That period between the French Open and the US Open, I made the mistake of trying to lead by being too strong and, and standing up and, and making sure that, all right, every day we're going to get onto the court and we're going to keep pushing and you're really close and I believe in you. And, and I was trying to be this macho guy, I guess, that, okay, you know, forget the French Open. It never happened. We, we're so close. Let's go and get this done. But I wasn't connected to what she was going through. And I wasn't feeling the pain that she was. I, I knew the pain she was suffering, but I was trying not to show her that I was feeling the same, same pain. And I was for sure. And that's all she needed to see was that I was suffering as well because to her, I was this guy that didn't really care that she was going through this, this moment or this pain. It wasn't true, but that was the impression that I was giving her. And so after the US Open happened, when she lost that match to Sharapova, her trainer basically told me that, hey, you've been a dick. You know, all she wants is for you to give her a hug and tell her that you love her. And, and, and that was much better than any coaching you can give her at the moment. And he was right. 100% right. So I did that and I went to the locker room and told her that I loved her and really proud of everything she's done and couldn't be more proud of what she's been going through. And I gave her a hug and, and she said, geez, I've been waiting for this hug for three months. And then two weeks later, she go out and beat Sharapova 6262. So, you know, the hug was the best coaching thing I'd done in about two years. So you learn from those moments. Um, but you only learn from those moments through trial and error. That's a great story. The achievement, even more beautiful and even sweeter because of the rocky road that, that yeah. led up to it. Uh, that's a handshake deal that, that withstood what you called shock therapy and, and the ultimatum. So it has to, it's become a pretty sturdy and very nice to watch handshake deal. This generation is a little bit different. The coaches do care because they are of my generation. Most of us are married or we have families, or we have kids. And to be a tennis coach means you've got to be on the road 35, 40 weeks of the year. So I'm lucky, again, that I'm coaching players of a level that I can get paid pretty well. Most don't. Most are doing this because they love it. It's, um, it's a tough life because you are away from the family for 35, 40 weeks of the year. Most are making an amount of money where you can't afford to bring the family with you. I can can if I choose to so I have luxuries that a lot of coaches don't but I do feel for a lot of coaches out there and we talk about coaches salaries in other sports you know if, if a coach is making 100 grand a year in tennis they're doing pretty well uh, it, it's not the money that most people think that they make um, a few make better than, much better than that but most don't so yeah I have a lot of, a lot of empathy for a lot of the coaches out there and what they're going through and what they're suffering through and they are damn good coaches all the coaches put in a ton of work and they're all trying to get better and the, and the relationship between a lot of the coaches on on the road is really close actually and we all try to help each other that's true coaching at the highest level of various sports the money the 
ego strokes the acclaim, just not there in tennis. You better be in it for the love of it because you're not going to get those in equal measures to the coaches in the, in, in the team sports. That's for sure. Uh, one of the last things, Darren, here, you've said that a coach's job is to coach himself out of a job. In other words, make the players self-sufficient enough. They don't need to listen to this guy any longer. Do you believe that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's more important, what was more important when we didn't have on-court coaching. On-court coaching helps a little bit because you can, you can change the course or the direction of a match if it's not going in the right way. And, and that's where it empowers the coaches a little bit more and it helps us improve our craft and to give us a little more responsibility. If you don't have that, you've got to teach your player to problem solve all the time. And you wish to do that anyway. You know, that's the, the role and the responsibility of a coach. But you'll get to a point. That's why I think the window of a tennis coach is about three or four years because you'll get to a point where the player pretty much knows what you're going to say before you come down and say it because they've heard it before, right? It's Tennis is about being brilliant at the basics doing it over and over and over again. So if you're spending all this time on the court with one player, working through practice sessions, working through practice matches, going through the tapes of matches they play, you're picking out the parts of the matches where the player is either doing great and you're reinforcing the positives or the player is not doing so great and you're trying to help them through that to, to throw different scenarios. Hey, you should have played the forehand down the line here instead of going cross court because you can't come cross court when you approach the net because it opens up too much angle. So you know if your players just called you out onto the court and they've hit two forehand cross courts and come to the net, they know what you're about to say. Stop hitting the cross court forehand when you're coming to the net. Take that ball down the line. So it'll get to a point where when they know what you're going to say is when you've probably coached yourself out of a job and, and it might be time for a different voice and a, and a different way of doing things and a different way of training and a different way of approaching matches. And that's where I think the three to four window is about right. Three to four year window is about right. We've seen coaches seem to age about five years within one match as they're suffering in the player box over the I don't know how you stay so, so youthful, so young looking, so energized there. And you should, you should be, you should be like a 110 year old after all the big matches and all the complicated personalities and the ups and downs, of the players you've coached in your career. You're keeping it together pretty well, my friend, for, for all that that's you've the experienced. First, that's the first lie that you've spoken today, Chris Valley. <laughs> Darren says the players that stress you the most as a coach are the ones that care the most about improving and that that's a beautiful thing. After taking a day or two to recover and decompress after the intensity of the U.S. Open, Darren and I circle back to talk about the captivating women's final and Novak Djokovic's bid to become the first man in 52 years to complete the calendar Grand Slam. Well, Darren, you had an amazing courtside position just a few steps behind the court, very near where the players' chairs are as Djokovic tried to clear the last hurdle of the 28 needed to get a Grand Slam. What what an amazing perspective. And, And what could you see from that vantage point about, you know, his mental state, the, the wear and tear, the pressure that was on him for that match? Yeah, Chris, I think it was a number of things. I think it really started from the pre-match interview. So I'm one of the, the analysts that are in that tunnel on Arthur Ashe Stadium and do a couple of questions to each of the players walking out for those big matches. And honestly, from all the years that Novak's played on Arthur Ashe Stadium, that was the first time when he walked towards me that you can actually hear the stadium reverberate through the through the tunnel. And that was the first time you could hear the whole stadium chanting Novak. And he felt that. It was like the, the tunnel was shaking. 
And I actually think that shocked him a little bit. As the tournament went along, he, you could feel that he was gathering more momentum and more support from the crowd. Uh, things were coming, becoming a little bit easier as far as embrace the crowd embracing him. But he was struggling with his game. But when he walked up for that pre-match interview, yeah, he was a little bit taken back. And I, I think I asked a simple question, you know, it's been an incredible year and it's been an incredible career so far, but how much have you been looking forward to tonight on this stadium against this opponent? And yeah, he just took a couple of seconds and said, you know, this is what it's all about. And his cheeks kind of went a little bit red and it was an amazing feeling. And, and had he won it and won the Grand Slam, it would have culminated in the greatest year that I've ever seen. And then I had the best seat in the house sitting uh, two rows back. It was about 10 feet away from him and watching both Medvedev and Djokovic go about it. The first game of the match, I think, was huge. And you can always reflect a little bit easier after the match is finished. But he had 40-15 in his first service game and ended up losing his first service game. And that set him on the back foot straight away. And I think deep down, he knew the tank was not full. He had to manage his physical levels all the way through that particular match. And there were periods in that match when he emptied the bucket to see if he could either get it back on level pegging or get that early breaker serve in the second set. And once he wasn't able to do that, a little bit reminiscent to the semi-final match against Zverev in Tokyo, he made a huge push late in the second set to get that breaker serve back, knowing that his energy levels were low. And once that didn't happen, it kind of fell apart pretty quickly after that. But just an amazing year. Incredible that he was able to do what he was able to do. I know that Federer has been one match away and had a 27 in one year before as well. But there is a difference between going one, two, three, and everything culminating into the US Open with the pressure, with the expectation, with the eyes upon him. It, there's a buildup of pressure. And Serena felt it a few years ago. And certainly Novak felt it in the end. Yeah, you can't just push a button and find energy. And whether it's the wear and tear from the tough path to get to that final, constantly falling behind a set down, or the pressure of the moment, I guess we'll never know because even though he's been one of the great pressure players in the history of, and maybe any sport, uh, it was a lot for him. Did you, did you sense early on that there was a weight on him that was something other than the, the physical component that, that maybe he just couldn't find his game. We've seen him turn matches around so often there. You, you've been in that same courtside position when all of a sudden the antenna goes up, he finds some energy and he pivots quickly. And we sort of waited for that to happen. And it, he just never could seemingly find the energy or overcome what was going on inside his head and his body. So the biggest telltale sign for me is whether or not he's got balance on a lot of his ground strokes. And we'll see him sort of get the wobbly boots sometimes with his feet and his body as he makes a couple of mistakes. But he did that constantly. He spends so much time and talks so much about the mental preparation. I think does more in that department than almost any athlete. And I think he does it because he knows he has to. He's kind of a, he says, I think he said to you that there's a volcano kind of yeah. inside his brain sometimes and, and, a, and a storm. And I think that, or tornado, actually, he said a tornado inside his head. And I think that, you know, because he's not naturally a calm person, he struggles with temper. He struggles with volatility. He's, he's practiced these techniques that are often very successful, but we have under the pressure of this seen that come out. We haven't talked a lot about Tokyo, but he did lose his cool completely there, smashing frames through a racket into the crowd. Yeah. Um, thankfully no one was in there. And then, obviously, had his moments where he just couldn't get himself calm 
and, and used those techniques at the U.S. Open final as well. And, and that, that, I think, was, was a little bit surprising to see because he's done everything he can to be ready for those moments, and it just didn't seem like he could get him, himself in the right mental state. I think it shows that he was pretty frazzled by the end of the US Open campaign. And at Roland Garros, he did it. He had that amazing match against Rafa, that four set match in the semis. And then he was a couple of sets down against Tsitsipas. And if you remember when he was two sets to one down and Stefanos took that toilet break, he sat there for about four or five minutes at the change of ends, just looking and staring into the crowd. And he had a little bit of a wry smile on his face, but he had a laser-like focus as well. And if you were watching that, you were thinking, oh my goodness, this is just going to be pain for Stephanus to, to close this match out because we've seen this so many times before. And you're absolutely right, Chris. We didn't see that in the final of the US Open. I'm sure he tried. I'm sure he tried to get that focus and, and build that energy level back up to a point where he can make an all-out assault. But when your body's not cooperating, your mind doesn't cooperate the way you want it to as well. And it just got to that point. And also on the other side of the court, you've got a guy that's playing inspired tennis as well. It was a mixture of what Novak had left in the tank and how good the other guy on the other side of the court was playing as well. Yeah, he showed no fragility, no frailty to Novak. And I think that's what made Djokovic realize that it was going to be a, a too tough of a climb back. He didn't have it in it because Medvedev never dropped his level to give him that hope or that belief. And I think the last thing on this match, ironic, you began with the description of the crowd noise. He's never got a welcome like that in any big match in his life. He's never gotten the love and support that I think he's craved and talked about craving uh, the same way that Federer and Nadal have gotten that support in those big moments. And it's ironic that he finally gets it for a match throughout and he's not able to use it in, in the way he hoped to. He wasn't able to gain inspiration or energy from it. Uh, in fact, he's been more successful in the past kind of drawing energy from the crowd that is not supporting him. And so that's what was too bad. You could see the sobbing at the end of the match, uh, really before the match was over with one game yeah. to go. That's uh, well it, was, said. it was quite powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's what really well said. It's kind of that me against the world philosophy, isn't it? That it, when the crowd starts to pull for the underdog or get on him about a couple of things that he just locks in and goes, you know what? I'm going to show you, I'm going to close this guy out and I'm going to have no mercy. And that's where his greatness comes from. So maybe it was a bit of a shock for him, but in the end, I think he'll look back on this year and be incredibly proud of what he's been able to achieve. And if he has craved that moment, that moment, that standing ovation that he got, uh, that, welcome from the crowd in Arthur Ashe Stadium. That'll stay with him forever as one of the great moments, even though he did lose that match. So, Last thought on these U.S. Open. In contrast to the heaviness and the historic weight of the men's final, there was a lightness to the all-teenager, unseated women's final with Emma Raducanu over Leila Fernandez. They play with such joy and abandon. And we've talked in this episode about pressure and what it does to the mind. It seemed that those two maybe because they didn't know what they didn't know, just went out there in that final, Darren, and just and showed the joy and showed the freedom and the lightness that, that is so rare in a big occasion, especially for those that haven't been there before. Youth, enthusiasm, fearlessness, uh, the, the ability to problem solve at such a young age was amazing. I think Fernandez did that time and time again throughout the tournament. Her run to the final was a little bit tougher. But it takes nothing away from what Emma did in the final because I thought Fernandez had it in her to win that match. And again, Raducanu just found another level. Every time she had to step up under pressure, she found a great shot. She didn't wait for the ball to be given to her. And she deserved every inch of that victory. And it's a lot to look forward to the next five years on the WTA Tour. So hopefully the Tour 
they embrace this, they market it, and they push these youngsters and all these names that are doing such great things to the forefront. And the great thing for us being in the media is we recognize now a lot more names on the WTA tour and it's much, much deeper than it was 10 years ago. And that's a great thing. And hopefully on the ATP tour, we can get the same. Yeah, it was an incredible energized US Open for, for so many reasons. One of the best. Darren Cahill, also one of the best. I remain grateful to Darren for his wisdom and his friendship. Now, the next episode in this podcast series is a toast to tequila, another topic that I'm very passionate about. My guest is the founder and CEO of my favorite brand of tequila, Casa Ragones, Berta Gonzalez Nieves. She is truly a pioneer. This is a great conversation about the entrepreneurial spirit, the inspiration, the challenges, and the rewards of that as told through tequila. I think you'll enjoy it. Keep an eye out for it. As always, I'm grateful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to Jason Weichel for his editing skills. I invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and I'll talk to you soon.